Hey folks, welcome back to the Clemson Podcast. Ben and Sam here with you today to talk baseball. We're going to talk some basketball recruiting with some transfers coming in. And we're going to hope to get this in under an hour and 38 minutes and hope not to beat Cody and QT's uh, bromance session last time. Sam, you think we can make that? I think it's a really good chance we beat that. Yeah, yeah. you're the one that's always for us getting in under an hour, so I feel like we might be able to fit it in uh but in all seriousness what cody and uh qt have to talk about is we're sitting through over an hour and a half of football chatter over so probably not so much for a quick baseball recap and some basketball recruits so we'll try to make this a manageable come in under an hour you think so yeah i think there's just a little more in depth than than what we'll be doing today but um i, I gotta be honest I, an hour. I gotta be honest i haven't finished listening to it i did it was worthwhile the last section was good that's what cody tells me but i don't always believe him yeah, so we're going to talk some basketball, and we're going to try to get out here quick, primarily because Sam wants to watch the Warriors game. It's game one of the Western Conference Finals tonight, so to talk about something relevant, at least uh, outside of the world of Clemson sports here, Sam, why should anybody be interested in the NBA right now, considering how uncompetitive NBA playoff basketball is? Oh, you shouldn't have set me up for that. I could talk all day about NBA basketball. but um, And there's no Clemson players in it right now, are there? Uh, no, the last one was Trevor Booker, and he got beat by LeBron. Uh, with the Pacers. So did a lot of people, so. Yeah. But um, the two the two matchups in the conference finals right now are a really interesting contrast of, of styles on both sides. The Western Conference that starts tonight, it's uh, the Warriors' fantastic ball movement and amazing pace against the Rockets. Also good pace, but they love ISO and they take the... Uh, the three or layup or free throw approach to an extreme. So it's sort of the, uh, the forward looking basketball approach, the, the future of basketball, hopefully uh, more like the Warriors than like the Rockets, but we'll see and which we, style wins out. Are we starting to see that kind of um, see this movement trickle down into college basketball at this point? Absolutely. I think at this point, certainly the, the value of the three point shot is something that is being recognized by more coaches than it used to be in college basketball. Um, and I think some of the creativity on defense that, that happened with the rule changes in the NBA a couple of years ago has really let a lot of coaches try new things defensively in college. Um, it's always going to bleed down and you're going to get more guys like Trey young that are, that grew up watching players like Steph Curry or uh, Damian Lillard, you know, these guys are, are influencing the, the young players in, in the world that well, are trying to become good. So I would make an argument that in Trey Young's sense, it's kind of a, a detriment to his game, and you saw him struggle over the second half of the season. He was a shell of his former self, and so was Oklahoma. I mean, arguably they weren't worthy of being in the NCAA tournament. Of course, they snuck in. Um, but I wouldn't necessarily, at least for him, for what I saw out of that, it wasn't a good thing. Yeah, I think Trey, he he's not a complete player yet, right? And the, the secret to success in the NBA is that you can't have any glaring weak spots. 
and part of what's fun about watching the playoffs at this level in, in the NBA, when you get to the conference finals and the championship, is that the coaches and the players know how to exploit all of the little intricate details of the other team's plans and the, the weaknesses of the other players. And so if there's something that you're really bad at, it's going to be exploited and they're going to come at you and you're going to pay for it if you can't figure it out. And obviously in the NBA, you have more of an ability to scout other teams. There's, Absolutely. There's a, there's Seven game a, series leads to a lot more. And there's a much smaller strategic. There's a much smaller pool of players that you actually have to pay attention to. Whereas NCAA basketball runs 300 deep. Yeah. 350. 350. Yeah. That's the beauty of it. Um, yeah. So let's expand it to a uh, 128 team tournament. Throw them all out there. That's an idea. It's really water down the product like the NBA does <laughs> with their playoffs. Yeah, half the league in. Um, so let's stick with college basketball and then transition over to Clemson. We're not usually talking about basketball this time of year, but coming on the heels of a very exciting uh, and a very successful season for Brad Belt- Brownell and his basketball team, we do have some rather exciting news and some transfers that uh, we'll be bringing on to the team going into the next year. One in Javen White, who will be able to play right away, and another one in Jonathan Bear that has a really huge upside. Um, and with the exit of Mark Donald and David Scar this year, a big man help is going to be uh, needed coming into the next couple of years. They figure Eli Thomas next year is going to be his last year. Um, and these are two guys that can really come in and help. And let's start with uh, Javen White. Again, like I mentioned, he's going to come in right away. Uh, he's a 6'9 uh, sophomore, I believe. Yeah, uh, he'll, be com- sophomore. he'll be coming in as a sophomore. He, or Sorry, 6'10 now. He played Oral Roberts last year. How does he fit in immediately to this Clemson basketball team, and what holes can he fill? Yeah, so he's a redshirt sophomore. Uh, missed a year to, to knee injury his sophomore year. But he comes in right away and can be a solid backup to Eli Thomas uh, down low. He's 6'10", clearly still growing. He came in as a freshman at 6'9", and about 200 pounds, and he's added 15, 20 pounds in uh, in muscle and grown another inch. So hopefully he can continue to fill out and get stronger. Uh, but he is a guy that that averaged about 10 and 9 last year for, for Oral Roberts starting most of their games. And that's a huge improvement from what he did the previous year, which was only play in about two thirds of the game, started only one or two and was averaging four and three. So he's improved a lot from year one to year two and a half. Uh, So I think we misspoke. He'll come in as a junior, his third year. Yes, he has two years of eligibility. Gotcha, two years left. So he, yeah, he's a redshirt sophomore rising junior. Gotcha. Um. But yeah, he's he's going to contribute right away. Um, well, this just kind of continues the trend in both of these guys to do of Brad Brennell bringing in players who do have a history of some success at the NCAA uh, collegiate level, and that's paid dividends so far. And what we've seen out of you know, eight, you know from Avery Holmes, Sheldon Mitchell to to Marquise Reed and Eli Thomas. That's true. And, you um, know, even Mark Donald, he was a contributor last year. He was previously a uh, on NCAA tournament team with Michigan. Yep. And I think Javen White is most reminiscent of Eli as a transfer. He's got two years of eligibility, just like Eli did. Uh, two and a half for Eli, but close enough. And uh, he's got a little bit of a defensive mindset, uh, which is good. He has the Iowa State high school men's basketball record for blocks. Uh, broke Harrison Barnes' record when he was in high school. But um, he should come in and be able to play right away. 
uh, he'll be a good backup along with Amir and um, especially for a more defensive minded, like, uh, more defensive minded guy, you're relying much less on his offense. So that takes the pressure off, really frees them up to really focus on their defense, which, you know, is part of this this Clemson basketball team and Brad Brownell system. That's hugely important. And not all five guys out on the court need to be able to score. We saw that uh, when Dante Grantham went down last year. You need, you know, somebody who's in there uh, to serve a role and do that well. consistently. Yeah. yeah. And White's uh, a capable scorer in the low post as well. Uh, practicing against Eli and Amir Sims every day should help him work on those post game, his post game to, to be able to be a more effective scorer even. Uh, but he shot over 50% from the field in his uh, redshirt sophomore year. So he should be able to contribute on both ends, and, and hopefully he'll come in ready to play. Again, so this is a guy that will be able to come in next year and back up Eli Thomas in the absence of Mark Donnell. We expect Malik William to improve upon his freshman season in that four spot uh, next year. So, again, it's a pretty good pickup for the Clemson Tigers. I know the, the competition – in the Summit League is not anything close to what he's going to be facing um, in the ACC, but he does have a good track record, and you've seen what Brownell has been able to do lately with these transfers from smaller conferences. We've actually started to see some development um, in these players and also just an eye for talent. And it's also, you know, these guys have a decent offer list of, of, of places where they could go play, so the momentum of players actually starting to choose Clemson uh, based on what Brownell has built here his culture in the program, uh, the upgraded facilities with the basketball programs, you're really starting to see all that pay dividends. And I think as you start to see, you continue to see success with bringing in transfers and how that contributes to the success of the program on the court, that's turning around and uh, affecting recruiting. Absolutely. I mean, you see our, our freshman class from last year was obviously stronger than we've been accustomed to. And the one coming in for the next season uh, we've talked about in depth before on the podcast, but our guys that that should be good and have a lot of potential. And we have a shot at this five-star shooting guard, right, from Columbia? Yeah, and we were in the running for um, Zion Williamson until the very end. So the name recognition, both from, I think, from football and from the new facilities and from the the grad transfers, it's a whole culmination of a bunch of different efforts across the board for Clemson sports that are leading to a little bit more clout when we're going to recruit guys um, for basketball. Well, it's really great to see all these uh, these things that Brad Brownell has done and the athletic department has done really start to pay off uh, because they asked a lot of patience from us and a lot of us ran out of patience, but they stuck with it. And now we're starting to see the fruits of that labor. Um, and, you know, the program is really starting to blossom. And, you know, over the next couple of years, things are really looking up. Now, you have to keep that momentum going, just like Dabo's had to do on the, on the football trail. He's had to continue to build and get better and better. And then once you get uh, to the apex of where you're at, you got to, you know, keep that that momentum um, up to, to maintain that success. And that's really I think that might be an even harder uh, task than, than getting there sometimes. So. Uh, it'll be interesting to see. It's been exciting so far. Um, and again, this is another big pickup. So let's switch it over now to a guy, again, who may have a higher ultimate upside, especially with his offensive game, Jonathan Bear. Uh, he's a 6'9", uh, transfer coming in. He's a forward. He will be a rising junior. junior He'll well, have two yeah. years of eligibility yep. left. Uh, he will have to sit out next year. But again, Elijah Thomas, one more season. You'll have Javon White with one more year, and then Jonathan Bear will have two years. How does he fit in? Is he a guy that can come in and kind of take the place of Eli Thomas? 
Uh, I think he's really more of a Mark Donnell type player, um, but also potentially a little bit of a, an overlap with what Dante did for us last year. Gotcha. So he's a guy that can come in and shoot the three. He shot 37%, over 37% with uh, UNC Asheville last year and uh, over 80% from the line. So he's got a good stroke. He should be able to improve that three-point percentage uh, given the fact that he shot 80% from the free throw line. And that was a huge improvement from his freshman year where he shot 45% from the line. So he's working hard on his shot. He's more of a Euro style big, which makes sense. He was born in Germany, came over his senior year to play his last year of high school in Georgia, uh, and then went to UNC Asheville for a couple of years. He, uh, he averaged seven and four and a half um, for his last year. But like you said, he's got a ton of upside, especially on the offensive end. Um, he also was one of the league leaders for, um, for the big South in blocks as well. So another guy who can sort of, uh, protect the rim for us to take the place of some of what Eli does for us right now and, uh, can also contribute on the offensive end. I really like both of these pickups for the team. They fill holes that guys leaving have, have left and will leave once Eli departs, whether that's in, uh, after next season or the one after. Halfway through. I don't know how that works if he's got uh, half a season left, I guess. No, he's just got next year. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So he played half a season with Texas A&M. And, and then, then half a season with us. And then came back, right. set out the first half. So Eli's departure, uh, Jonathan will come in and, and fill that slot. Whether he's exactly uh, the same style of player is, is to be seen. I don't think he will fill, fill that same role. Um, but a couple of six nine guys who can play defense and score never is going to hurt your team. So uh, I think they'll give us a little bit of versatility offensively and give us a little bit more depth defensively. Uh, we need somebody bigger than Amir Sims playing center, which he did fantastically last year when filling in in that role. Uh, but he's not a big guy. He's only about 6'8". So two guys that are around 6'10", uh, with long arms who've played uh, a couple of years in college basketball already, they've got the experience. They know how to play the game. They know what it takes to prep for games. So I think... Um, it's a really good pickup on both in the last couple of weeks by by Brad Brownell. Yeah, these aren't garbage pickups. These are guys that who have experience and they have excelled at the level of basketball they have played. And again, it's not the same level as they're going to face in the ACC, but the the potential is there. And again, there is um, there's a track record for Brownell here recently of bringing in transfers and them excelling and doing really well. And this is not to say that on the recruiting trail that we don't need to be looking out for another big man in the next class who can, you know, grow into contributing in a couple of years. But these guys will help plug a hole for the immediate future. And again, they're big bodies. It's nice to see six, ten guys on the floor um, instead of just capping out your big man in like six, eight. Yeah. Uh, Eli was our, our really our only big one because uh, Malik didn't play much his freshman year, but um, they should both be able to help us out uh, across the board coming into the next year. And hopefully they can help, um, especially in practice with Eli and Amir and Malik, um, give them a little competition in practice every day and, and help them grow as players as well. Yeah. So again, the, 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 the future is, is still looking bright here for Clemson basketball. I think the best is yet to come. And these are two guys that are going to be good pieces of a fit right in pieces of the puzzle to help as this team continues to develop, continues to grow and continues uh, achieving um, you know, next levels of success, uh, levels of success that we haven't seen quite some time with Clemson basketball. Um, all right, now before we switch over to baseball, I want to give a plug real quick. I mentioned at the beginning of the show, Cody and Quacking Tiger from Shaking the Southland. 
um, did a podcast last week. It was very informative. It's always a great interview to have Quacking Tiger on. Those guys did a great job. It's non-perishable stuff. We're not in the middle of the football season, so I urge you, if you haven't listened yet, to go back. Um, it might take a couple of days to get through it all, but uh, it certainly take it in bite-sized chunks. Yeah, exactly. Um, certainly solid information. Uh, with that, let's move on to baseball. Okay, the Clemson men's baseball team has bounced back from little lull right um, before the last time we checked in. They went on an eight-game winning streak there. They currently sit at 38-13 and 13 overall. It's 19-8 in the ACC. They are first in the Atlantic with a one-game lead over North Carolina State. And they are tied for the most ACC wins with uh, UNC. Boys are 10-2 since we last checked in with series wins over Virginia, Florida State, and Austin P here recently over the weekend. Throw in there also some wins over Kennesaw State, Presbyterian, and Western Carolina. Uh, for the most part, a bit of resurgence uh, in the batter's box for the team. Um, interesting things of note, they swept Virginia for the first time since 2002. It's not saying a lot this year as Virginia is not a very uh, – Good baseball team, but they hit the ball well in that series, and the starting pitching was pretty decent. Higginbotham struggled at his start, but otherwise um, what we got from uh, Hennessy and Crawford was serviceable. In the Florida State series, um, lost the first game in heartbreaking fashion, 3-2 to two in the 13th inning. Uh, Clemson was out hitting that game 15-6. to six. However, the pitching was really fantastic. Uh, Hennessy had... Went into the six, only gave up one run. Ryan Miller pitched over three innings, only giving up a one. Riley Gilliam, warnings pitch. He gave up the winning run, but, you know, that's stretching him out. That's a long ways for him to go. Uh, but the team did bounce back, uh, winning the next game 12-7. to And then Jordan Green with a big walk-off home run in the, the rubber match of that game. That was a really thrilling game. Uh, Sam Hall, who we'll talk about here in a little bit, with an absolutely fantastic catch. Um, and then Seth Beer had a big home run in that game, too, to, to tie things up. Clemson had four errors in that game. Uh, we'll talk about that a little bit as well. They seem to be coming in bunches, and when they do, it, it, it can stand to hurt this team. Um, and then the series against Austin P over the weekend. This one was kind of a head scratcher. It kind of seemed like the guys came out flat in the first game of that series, losing 6-3. to Hennessy really struggled in that game. Um, this series over the weekend was, I don't know what to take from it. It's almost like the guys weren't really taking it too taking it seriously. seriously. Yep. I mean, it seems like we got outplayed and, and outcoached at times. Uh, you know, the, the bats did go off in the second game, uh, beating them 10-1 to in, in, in Crawford had a fantastic game, probably his best game as a starter, six and two-thirds innings pitch, four hits, one run, no walks, ten strikeouts. That's a career high. I think his previous high was five. Um, he's up to seven and two on the year as a starter. So slow and steady wins the race. Crawford was kind of not doing as well or not going as deep in games as the other two guys at the beginning of the year, but he's really come on in the late. Um, and then the last game of the, the series, Clemson wins three to two in the 11th. A big walk-off home by Grayson Bird, but the really talk in this game was the inning before that in the 10th when Clemson got runners on second and third with no outs. Um, and a lefty-lefty matchup versus Seth Beer, really gutsy call by the Austin P coach to pitch to him, but ultimately they, they struck him out yep. uh, and had a base open there. Could have walked him to load the bases and create some force plays, but struck him out, uh, then walked Williams, then Wilkie hit into a double play. So... 
To me, that was the most concerning part of that. It's situational hitting, and we can kind of start there. You know, as the hitting hasn't been there for the Tigers this year, their average is up now to, to 255 on the year. Um, that's up 12 points from when we talked about it last, but strikeout, situational hitting, and base running uh, mistakes have really been a problem for this team, and that's something to be concerned about heading into the postseason. Absolutely. We talked about it before, but this team really struggles to manufacture runs. Uh, we live and die by the home run. Uh, the games you just recapped, we had two walk-off homers. First time in a couple of years that we've had any, and we had two within a week, which I thought was kind of cool. Uh, but without those home runs, and the Beers had a few, and uh, Williams has had a few in the last week and a half, without those home runs, we're scoring very few runs and not getting enough runs on the board to support the pitchers who have been Pretty outstanding with a couple of blips here and there, but they've been great. Yeah, I mean, the team is second in the NCAA with home runs yeah. with, with 79. Behind Tennessee State, what are they feeding Ten- those no, Tennessee Tech. Tennessee Tech. Ten- Tennessee Technological University. Whoa. They're not only leading the country in home runs, they have 113. Yeah, Clemson, we've got 78. 79. 79. Um, so just out of curiosity, when I saw that, uh, number one, that blew my mind. I went and looked at their roster, and their one through nine guys are all hitting over 300. Yeah, and they've and like six of them have 10-plus home runs. It's yeah. insane. I wouldn't want to run into them in the tournament. No, it's crazy. Um, you know, the best pitching staff in the world, they got about a four-and-a-half ERA. But they may not need it. When you're hitting the ball that well. So they're a ranked team, and they will make it into the NCAA tournament. So... Fingers crossed they're not the two seed in our region. They'll probably won't be, but um, definitely not a team that I would want to play. Um, anyways, back to the to the Tigers. You know, this team is great. Overall, this team has been great when they're leading this year. They're 32-2 and two when leading after six innings, and that's really a testament to how well the bullpen has been pitching. Uh, however, you haven't seen those dramatic comebacks this year that we've gotten used to seeing from Monty Lee teams in his first two years as the, the Clemson uh, baseball coach. Uh, we're only four and ten when trailing after six innings. We're only eleven and ten when opponents score first. Doesn't matter, you know what part of the game that's in. Um, so the fact that we're not having as many comebacks is—I don't know if it's concerning because you can look at it uh, from a certain perspective. Well, we're not getting down a lot, you know, and we are winning when we get the lead. We're fourteen and four in one-run games, which is a which is a good stat, you know. In clutch situations, we're not giving up runs and we're winning close games. Uh, but again, it's the little things, base running, situational hitting that is really going to come back to, to the bite you in the ass when you're starting to play better competition, uh, getting into the ACC tournament and then going into the NCAA tournament. Yeah, we just we really rely on the, the scoring output for this team to win. We do fairly well, like you just said, in, in close games, but we've only got one loss when we've uh, scored at least six runs in a game this year. And the rest of them have come with five or fewer, most of them three or fewer. So if it's a pitching duel, there's a good chance we're not going to win it, even if it's close. Well, let's take a look at the bright side here first. I I think we have to lead off with the fact that uh, Kyle Wilkie has an 18 game hitting streak. I mean, he's just been on fire. He probably first third of the season was batting 150, well below the Mendoza Mm -hmm. line. And 18-game win streak has him up to 310 on the year. Uh, Logan Davidson's in the middle of a 13-game hitting streak. He's reached base safely in all but four games this year. I mean, he's been really solid all year long. So these two guys right here, and getting on base as much as they have, Kyle Wilkie's been really clutch with runners in scoring position. Uh, For the most part, they've been the guys that have carried us uh, through this recent stretch. Yeah, Wilkie especially has just been on an incredible hot streak the last couple of months. Uh, if you look at his average as of April 14th, so a month ago today, 
He was hitting 216 on the season, and he's up to 310. So in yeah. a month, he's raised his average by 100 points. It's pretty incredible. Yeah, he's batting 449 during his streak with three home runs and 16 RBIs. I don't think anybody saw this coming out of him. I don't think we could have expected that this year. That's really helped to keep him in the lineup catching and allowing Chris Williams to play first base, yep. um, which is good. He was nursing an injury, which is why he started the season there and didn't uh, move to catcher. Um, and then Logan Davidson, on the other hand, he's up to 302. He's been steady. He kind of had a little bit of a downturn earlier in the year, but he's batting 431 uh, during his streak. He leads the team with, with uh, 49 runs scored on the year, so he's been hot. Um, last couple of weeks, he's been flashing some power as well. He's got four home runs in the last uh, week and a half that we just covered. Third on the team with 11 home runs, so he's really picking off where he uh, left off last year. It's good to see him consistently from his freshman year to a sophomore year, not really have a sophomore slump. And that really bodes well for him coming back next year as a junior. Yep. Um, and when you compare his numbers to Seth Beer, not only is his average better, he has five less home runs. Um, he's only got five less RBIs. He's got a better on base percentage. Uh, or no, sorry, he has just slightly the same. Yeah. yeah, about four points less on the on base percentage, which is saying a lot because Seth Beer has 42 walks on the year, but. Logan Davidson has 38, and his OPS is 971, not that much lower than Seth's beer. So it, it's funny. When you take those two names away and just look at the stats, Logan Davidson looks like he could be your three- or four-hole hitter. Absolutely. And uh, Beer's been pretty consistent throughout the year as far as his average in the homers. He's been doing it throughout. But another guy that we were relying on really early in the season who was killing it was Chris Williams, and he has sort of gone the other way as Wilkie and Davidson have come up. Williams has sort of dropped off and, and stopped hitting for average almost entirely. He's he's down to about 249 for the season. Um, he's still hitting home runs. Still got that power. The last five games, though, he's got nothing. Still leading the team in RBIs with 51 RBIs. But, yeah, when you look at his average over the course of the season, he hit 387 in February, down to 270 in March, 239 in April, and hitting 154 so far in May. I mean, that is a straight downward spiral. Yeah. So – Getting him back on track and, and getting a little confidence going to the playoffs is going to be key in this last four-game stretch. And I'm not I'm not sure, based on what you're seeing there, that there is a get-back-on-track for him. He's just striking out a lot. It's either a home run or not much else. Yep. He's uh, he's definitely struggled. His slugging percentage, I mean, his overall numbers are still reasonable because he was so on fire to start the year. Um, and he's but, still hitting home runs. Exactly. So he's still contributing, but it's just... He's part of the reason him and beer uh, are part of the reason that we struggle to manufacture things because they're not really uh, batters for average. They're power hitters. And, and that's what they're looking to do is they're looking to go out there, hit doubles and home runs. And, and that's about it. And as you mentioned with Seth beer, at least he's been consistent. He's hitting about the 280 to 290 <laughs> range all year long. Um, it's consistent with what he did last year. It's inconsistent with over 400 for the most of the uh, time his freshman year. But uh, I think teams are really caught on. There's enough, of tape on him to kind of pick out his weaknesses. Yep. And I know he's been working through some things with his swing and his toe tap, um, his mechanics as far as it comes to that, but at least he's been steady. Chris Williams is the one that worries me and I'm going to suggest we even drop him in the order. Um, and we'll get to that here in a little bit, but it just based solely on his numbers, I think you got to take the pressure off of him just a little bit. Um, but really the big problem I think has been, the lower part of the batting order where I really think we need to make a uh, change. Uh, Cromwell has struggled out there. He struck out 19 times in those last 40 at bats hitting 150 over that span. 
Uh, Drew Warden's uh, has hit below 240 most of the year. I don't know why he's still in there. Uh, I would give Robert Jolly a chance, you know, over either of them. You do lose something as far as defense is concerned. I know he's only hitting 239, but he's proved it in the past. He's a better hitter than that. Grayson Bird, uh, he's been in the lineup more and more. He's hitting 256 on the year. His average has slowly continued to drop a bit, but he has more RBIs. Um, uh, than Cromwell and Jolly and less plate appearances, and he's fourth on the team in the home runs. So I think you have to take that into consideration. And then you've got a guy like Jordan Green. He's batting 250. He's starting to to bring his average back up. He came in about midway through the season, finally started seeing some starts. He was off uh, to a hot start when he was seeing more playing time. Dipped a little bit, but he's up 15 points over his last six uh, games. His on-base percentage is better than Cromwell, Jolly, and Warden's. He scored more runs than Jolly and Warden in less at-bats. And he's 7-8 on the base pass, the only bases. So, again, these last two guys, Grayson Bird and Jordan Green, I really think that they need to get the nod over guys like Cromwell, Warden, or Jolly at this point. Yeah, I think on the infield, you you hit the nail on the head. Let's take the hot hands, and if we need to pinch hit guys like – Williams are moving down in the lineup for a game or two to, to figure it out. I think it's totally worth it. Um, in the outfield, Sam Hall has been incredible uh, the last couple of weeks coming on as a freshman. Uh, another quick guy who can uh, help us manufacture some runs and steal some bases. He's six for seven on the season in steals. Um, and he's hitting about 268 right now. And, uh, and it has been dropping. And I do want to talk about that, both with him and Keir Meredith, who has been injured um, hopefully can make it back uh, this week for a midweek uh, series tomorrow night and Tuesday against Kennesaw State. But let's talk about Sam Hall and Keir Meredith here real quick because there, there's a trend uh, between these two guys. When Keir Meredith uh, finally uh, started playing midseason, I was an advocate for keeping him lower in the order. Again, he's a true freshman. I know he's all, got all the potential in the world, but I saw no reason to put a lot of pressure on him right away. So, of course, he goes out there and has a good first game going two for three, and then Monty moves him into the leadoff role. Well, he hit 200 over the last last 30 at-bats. So mm-hmm. I think that was a knee-jerk reaction move, trying to find somebody maybe to get a spark there at the top of the order. Logan Davidson hadn't really turned it on quite yet, but mm-hmm. I thought he got moved up way too quickly. And then Sam Hall, once he made a shift, uh, Monty made a shift with him in the Austin P series, moving him to the leadoff position. He's been 1-12 to since, since Monty tried him at the top of the order. So... You know, and, and what kind of message is that sending? You know, with Sam Hall, a guy like him, his confidence is high. And then one game, he has bad play, uh, you know, a bad game at the plate, and you start dropping him in the order. For a young guy that really takes a hit on their confidence. So I think you got to keep those, protect those guys a little bit and keep them lower in the order until you have more of a sample size to see what they can really do. And it sure as hell isn't one game, as in the case of Keir Meredith. Yeah, especially for a guy like Hall, who's who's a fantastic fielder as well. He's really helping in the outfield. You mentioned he had a great play uh, at the end of a game, running up the hill in the, in the outfield, making a catch to save the save the game. He's somebody who we want to have confidence coming up to the plate, right? So if you're going to drop him after one or two bad outings, while moving everything around. We talked all year about setting the lineup and going with something, right? He, the coaching staff hasn't really done that. And I understand in college, like there is going to be a little bit of movement in the lineups, but it has bounced around way too much this year. I mean, of course you're going to have freshmen that you're going to throw in there and see what they can do. And they're going to have their highs and lows. And listen, 
you know, we saw flashes out of Hall, but we don't know if that's going to stick. I mean, the same thing with Kier Meredith. Like, you know, remember when Jeff Francoeur came up for the Braves and he was hitting over 400 for the longest time and everybody thought that he was going to be the next great thing. Well, again, small sample size. People mm-hmm. usually get off to a hard start and then cool down a little bit once there's a scouting report on them. And so, you know, take it with a grain of salt how well these do, these guys do and don't, again, have these knee-jerk reactions by moving them around. Um, now, if we're taking a look at the lineup for me, as I mentioned, and we both mentioned that we think it's been bouncing around too much, ideally, this is where I think we should land. I've got Jordan Green leading off, not Logan Davidson as good as he's been. And the reason being is that he has the fourth highest OPS of guys that we're considering here for these mm-hmm. positions. And the top three, are, for me, come next in the lineup. So I've got Jordan Green there. Uh, Kyle Wilkie, I got batting second. He's not going to be, or you know, he's not a typical leadoff guy, so I wouldn't have him there. We mentioned Jordan Green is 7-8 on the base path, so he um, has an advantage there. He's been hitting really well with runners in scoring position. And I'll set him up here as two when we get to talk about the bottom of the order. I got Seth Beer three. I think that's his natural place. I've got Logan Davidson um, in the cleanup role. I'm moving Chris Williams out of that. Um, he's second on the team in average on base percentage and uh, on base plus slugging, mm-hmm. which OPS is one of the big metrics you look at. I put Logan Davidson in there right now. I think he's the hottest hitter on the team outside of Wilkie, and he has more power. I would then move Chris Williams down to the five spot. I think you got to shuffle something up there with him. Yep. Um, just as much as he struggled this year. Um, then I've got two veterans following him and Grayson Bird and Robert Jolly. Um, again, I think Jolly's production and what he's proven in the past, and then Grayson Bird, his power production this year being fourth on the team in home runs, I think that warrants them in there over guys like Patrick Cromwell and Drew Warden. Um, in the eight spot, I put Hall there to switch it up with the lefty-righty, and then I have Keir Meredith ninth. Now, what that does, and you'll see this in Major League Baseball too, and you saw you know, a lot of you, if you watch the Braves uh, this year, where they switched the pitcher to the eight hole and uh, you know moved a, a, a Nciarte to the, mm-hmm. to the nine position. Uh, you see that sometimes happen in Major League Baseball. I think it's in, in college baseball, it doesn't really matter because you don't have a pitcher hitting there. So I think Keir Meredith, you take the pressure off him, him and Hall, have them at the bottom of the lineup, but then look at what that does. If you start with Hall, you got Hall, Meredith, Green, and Wilkie. So you kind of turn that around. And yep. going from the bottom of the lineup into the top of the lineup, all of a sudden you have Wilkie kind of in a four man position if you lead off with Hall in an inning. So I, I just think just having that flip of the lineup. With the pressure taking off of Sam Hall, Kier Meredith, I think that that might be a good strategy moving forward. I'm not a baseball coach. I'm not Monty Lee and don't have the years of experience and success that he has. But to me, this is how I would set the lineup. I think I agree with the the guys you've got in there, the nine that you've that you've tagged. Uh, I would mess with the the order a little bit personally. Uh, I like Jordan Green leading off. I think he's he's done a good job early in the uh, the order getting on base. And he's on a bit of a hot streak lately. And he's got the confidence right now, which is key. Right. And I care less about his batting average than I do about his, his uh, on a base percentage. Absolutely. Um, and you had Wilkie second. I would put Davidson second instead um, because Wilkie has been just unstoppable uh, as far as getting on base, which is great for a guy in a two spot. Um, but, I want more chances to have people on in front of him. I want him to be able to hit people in 
uh, and get them in for runs right. and start manufacturing. He's been clutching. Davidson is somebody that can steal yeah. some bases, move guys around while also hitting for average and moving uh, Jordan Green around if he gets on base. So I'd go uh, Green, Davidson. I'd probably go Wilkie three, Beer four, and I'd have Williams five as well. See, I'm not sure if I agree with that Beer at four. The problem is, is that Williams doesn't protect Seth Beer. Um, I don't think, but I guess I do. I mean, I see your strategy there of having a righty, a switch hitter, a righty, and a lefty in beer. Yeah. Uh, Williams not protecting is an issue. Um, but I, I feel confident he can get it back together at least to a degree, well, not back to where he was at the beginning of the year, but hopefully he can make an improvement. Well, maybe you play the righty-lefty matchup, and when uh, when you're going against a lefty, you have Williams there in that five-hole protecting beer. Uh, when you're facing a righty, you put Bird there. Yep. Yeah. So I'd probably go Bird and then Hall and um, and Meredith, 8-9 as well. I could flip-flop those two, either 9-8, eight, 8-9. Eight, um, but like you said, I think it's important to think about how you're going to come around at the end of the, the lineup and the order and come back in to the front of it. So those two guys are a little bit more consistent as of late than somebody like Grayson Bird. But we'll see. We'll see what the coaches do and how we end the season and, and how we head into the playoffs. Yeah, I mean, like you I, said, they know a hell of a lot more than we do. Yeah, but I just think at this point you have to take a look at the body of the work and it, Carmel Warden just haven't been cutting it. Um, I know they're seniors, but you know, once you get in the playoffs, it's not about seniority; it's about who's going to produce for the team and get us wins. Exactly, and I think having Green and Bird. And Jolly in there give you a better chance of that just based on their body of work. Um, and then you keep Sam Hall in there for the time being. Now, if he continues to struggle and kind of goes down that that freshman route of mm-hmm. off to a hot start, then just all of a sudden can't hit anything, I think you got to yank him out of there. And then you start playing with Cromwell and Wharton. Uh, maybe you uh, go lefty righty matchups. Uh, Keir Meredith, I think just having him at the bottom of the lineup, even if he's hitting around 200, 225, just him getting on base, um, him getting to first almost automatically means he's getting second. Yep. Um, or he's going first to third on a single. Um, so again, I think a smart guy to have there. I would not lead him off right now. I think Jordan Green is more than capable in giving his on base percentage and his speed on the base path. I think that makes the most sense. Um, so let's switch it over to the pitching now. The pitching has been um, it's been interesting to me because in my mind I feel like it hasn't been good, but then I look at the team ERA and it's steady at three four five and it's yep. been hovering around there. It's an improvement over Monty Lee's first two seasons. Um, so overall, I guess they've been doing well based on the numbers. Yeah, I mean we we see the single game outings where we give up ten runs or twelve runs and. It makes you think, ah, oh, crap, these guys, they can't figure it out. They can't, you know, be consistent. But the other two outings in most of the series that we've had have been five or fewer runs, which, uh, like we talked about, if we're scoring five, six plus, there's a good chance we're winning that game. Yeah, I think the big concern is that the overall lack of depth um, is something that really come back to hurt us when we get into um, postseason and tournament play. You know, the starters, it's very rare that we have all three starters go past the fifth inning or Mm -hmm. sometimes even into the fifth Mm -hmm. um, or completing five um, over the weekend. We're giving up the majority of runs to our opponents in the first five innings of the games. And again, that just goes back to it says a lot about our bullpen who 
has done really, really well this year. We wondered at the beginning of the season how these young guys with not a lot of experience would well wear down over the course of the year. I think we're starting to see that in Hennessy. He's struggled. But between Crawford and Higginbotham, they've been pretty good. You know, Higgy had that bad outing against Virginia. He had some bad, ran into some bad luck in the Florida State game where he gave up four runs, but none of them were earned. Errors really cost him in that game. Uh, but for the most part, he's been solid. And then we talked about uh, Crawford, 7-2 um, on the year. You know, he completed five innings only once through his first six starts of the season, but he's completed five and six of his last seven starts. So that's a guy, again, at the beginning of the year, wasn't going deep in the ball games. Um, and now he really has of late. He's only got three walks in his last 38 and two-thirds innings pitch, which is huge, and that's including no walks in his last 23 and two-thirds. So he's right now probably our most consistent starter. Yeah, Crawford and Higginbotham have both been great. Like you said, uh, Crawford has gone six of his last seven, getting at least five innings in. He had his career high in strikeouts, which was several more than his previous uh, career high. Higginbotham, since March 31st in his last seven or eight starts, except for that Virginia one, every game he's lowered his ERA. It's dropping every outing. So Yeah, he's got a 2.59 ERA over his last six starts. Yeah, so he's been consistent and giving up a limited number, especially of earned runs. Uh, you talked about the Florida State one where he got unlucky. but He does have 16 walks in his last 26 and a third innings pitch, so that is a bit of concern. Um you know, Monty Lee's philosophy when it comes to this pitching staff is he wants guys out there that are going to throw strikes and pitch to contact. So interesting to see him struggle there. But overall, the ERA tells a different story. So he is managing that. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's really Hennessy. Um, he's completed six innings in five of his first eight starts. He was the guy that was going deep into ball games. Yep. He's done that zero times in his last five starts. His ERA has jumped more than a run um, in those yeah. past five starts. and. His velocity's down. He's throwing in the lower 80s right now, and he's just getting hit. Yeah, he's given up uh, at least five run or five hits in six of his five of his last six games, and oof, almost every start this year. And so this is why I think when we talked on our last episode, I was really advocating as well as Spencer Strider had been pitching. I was advocating for him just to to continue getting uh, weekday starts to build him up in case one of these weekend starters really started um, to falter. And now we have a situation where it looks like Hennessy isn't going to be able to make it. He, he may not. Um, it just may, he may be worn down. Yeah. Um, and you see that in his lower velocity. So it would really help to have a guy like Strider, who's had a few starts recently under his belt to go out there. I mean, listen, he's got a 217 ERA over his last 29 innings. Um, he's given up nowhere in runs in 10 of his last 13 appearances and only one in his last uh, eight. Uh, he leads the team in strikeouts with 60 despite being sixth in innings pitched. I mean, the kid is striking people out right and left. I know he also leads the team in walks, um, but those have been going down late. It's really clicked for him, um, and he hasn't been giving up hits. I mean, his MO has been going out there and striking people out. I would have hoped to see them start to stretch him out to maybe possibly – prepare him for a first starting role once we get into the postseason. Yeah, it would have been nice to have a little bit more prep on that front going into the postseason because, like you said, Hennessy looks tired. Um, he's been giving up a bunch of hits, not going deeper into games. So we may be able to shrink it down to a three-man rotation for a lot of playoffs, but when you get deep into it, 
you just you need a fourth guy to be able to come in and give you quality innings. Well, if guys aren't going to go deep into ball games, um, you know Ryan Miller has pitched out of his mind this year. Uh, he continues to be solid outside of the starters. He's thrown the most innings out of anybody this year. Riley Gilliam, amazing, point eight six ERA with ten yeah. saves. Has only given up one run in ACC play. Opponents are only batting one forty three against him. Um, he's striking people out. He's after a slow start to this season. He's really come on strong. Carson Spears has been solid all year long. Travis Moore is a guy who we really relied on, um, but he's struggled as of late. ERA over ten over his uh, last almost twelve innings pitch. So that's a guy too could start be starting to wear out as the season goes along. So already a pitching staff that was not very deep at the beginning of the year. You're starting to have a few guys tail off. So that really concerns me moving into the postseason. Yeah, absolutely. I think our middle relief is definitely our strong suit. We've got two starters who are are consistently showing up in Crawford and Higginbotham, but two is not enough. You know, we need Hennessy or another guy to step up or one of the midweek guys uh, to step up. And we can't rely on Strider and uh, Miller and Marr to go three, four, five innings every game and save the starters. Yeah, so I think as we move into tournament play in the postseason that a few things are going to have to happen. First, with the pitching staff, I think you're really going to need to shorten the uh, game for the guys in the bullpen. And that means the starters going at least five innings. Ideally, you get into the sixth. And that's not just all on them. Like the, the fielding has to be good too. We can't be having two, three, and four errors consistently in ball games. You know, for the most part, the fielding percentage is at nine seventy five is pretty decent. It's yep. up over the last two years. Yep. Um, but the problem is the errors seem to come in bunches, which makes you tend to think that the team is unfocused at times. And again, we saw that at Austin P over the weekend. Um, made more than two errors. Um 14 times this year and we're eight and six in those games. So it does have an effect. So again, that especially with starters who are pitching to contact, you've got to have solid defense behind them. So I think it starts there uh, between the starters, not walking a lot of guys and the defense playing well behind them. Um, that really allows them to go deeper into ball games and it saves your bullpen because I don't know how much we get out of Travis Moore here over the rest of the year. And I'm not sure how much Hennessy has left to give you, especially with his lowered velocity that is concerning. So coming up, it looks like Clemson should win the Atlantic. Uh, we got a game at Kennesaw State on Tuesday. Then we're at Pittsburgh starting on Thursday. That'll be interesting to see. Um, it looks like we Drew Weatherly has been starting uh, the midweek games, um, but he struggled a bit there, hasn't been going deep. And we have a quick turnaround from Tuesday to Thursday, so... You hope not to spend a lot of your bullpen as we now jockey for position in the NCAA tournament. Um, but I don't have confidence that, that, any, that he's or whomever we start is going to go very deep. Um, I'll be interested to see if they actually start Strider uh, at Kennesaw State. And it'll be exciting to see what he can do if that's the case. Yep. Um, Pittsburgh is a series that we should win, even though it's on the road. They're only 11 and 16 in ACC play, 27 and 22 on the year. They only bat 240s a team and have an ERA around four and a half. They do have an ace in Matt Pittich, who has uh, got a 274 ERA. If we were to lose a game in this series, I would pin it on that game that mm-hmm. he starts. I think Clemson has to sweep the series against Pittsburgh this weekend to get the number one seed in the ACC tournament. 
North Carolina is vying for that as well. They've got um, a series against Virginia Tech to close out the year. Virginia Tech's the worst team in the Coastal Division. So I think you can bank on North Carolina sweeping there. Um, and then moving into the ACC tournament, listen, Clemson got swept by NC State and haven't played North Carolina or Duke, the two best teams in the Coastal this year. Um, so I don't, you know, Clemson on the surface has had a very good year, obviously ranked in the top 10 of the various polls. Um, they're tied for the most wins in the ACC right now, but schedule has been really soft. The ACC is down this year and the three best teams in the ACC got swept by NC state. And again, haven't played the other two. The series win against Florida state was huge, but Florida state has been banged up. So, I personally think that Clemson's in for a rude awakening in the ACC tournament. I don't see us winning it. My pick is for NC State to win this tournament. And unfortunately, I think we go into the NCAA tournament um, a bit on a downward turn. That's definitely a possibility. Obviously, we hope for the best. Um, But like you said, we've pretty much got to sweep this series against Pitt this weekend to win the ACC and get that top seed, uh, which we always want the home home for home field advantage um duke north carolina nc state any of those three could technically still end up in first over us if we don't sweep and the problem is with the acc tournament it's so weird the format it's like you can lose the first day and then be somehow eliminated making all your other games in the tournament uh worthless and i don't even know why you play them i would just go home and rest your guys um so we'll see how it plays out um again when we've seen Clemson play better competition this year, uh, lost twice to Georgia, talked about NC State, and it hasn't turned out well. Um, so we'll see if the guys can put it together. They stay hot at the plate or make adjustments. Um, and if the pitching is able to pull us through, but I'm not optimistic. And then moving into the NCAA tournament, honestly, don't think this team gets a national seed. That's the top eight. We will host a regional. I think we've locked that in at that point. Um, but my prediction is that we lose in a regional for the eighth straight year. I think if we run up against a team that is hot coming into our regional, uh, most likely the two seed, and if they have a good pitching staff, I worry about this this baseball team because we strike out way too much. We're not good situational hitting. And, again, teams have put up runs against us this year. I don't think we are going to win a lot of low-scoring games. Yeah, I mean we've we've seen in the numbers that against low, good teams, low-scoring games are not our strong suit. If it's a a close game and it's high-scoring, we're getting up six, seven runs each. We have a good chance of winning that game. But if it's two, three, four, and it's a one or two-run game, we're not uh, we're not the best in those games. So it's going to be a struggle. Yeah, I think there's just too many flaws on this team that you can pick at. And I mean, kudos to them for having a great year. I think they're going to hit that 43-win mark that I predicted that they would. Um, but listen, only seven of their ACC series wins this year. Uh, only two of those were against teams that have a winning conference record. Uh, that's FSU and Louisville and the Louisville only recently brought their conference record up above 500. So I think when you step back and you really look at the competition, this team has played and then what they've done against, uh, good competition that it just doesn't bode well for this baseball team. And I'm, you know, you go on the message boards and you have the so-called pumpers and dumpers, and I think they're both wrong in their arguments. You know, the pumpers will not take a look at the schedule and the level of competition that is played, and then the dumpers, um, there's no matter what happens. I mean, this is across any Clemson sports or any team. 
Um, there's no no bright side that they can take out mm-hmm. of any of this. But I think if you um, objectively take a look at the body of work that this team has done this year and the quality of opponent that they've played, I think that tells you enough. This is not a team that I think you can rely on to hit against against good pitching. And I think that our pitching staff overall, guys you can trust, I don't think it's deep enough. But we'll see how it plays out. There's still a lot of baseball left to be played. Um, this team has every goal still in front of them. And, again, they've been ranked in the top ten for most of the year. So hopefully they hopefully they prove us wrong. wrong. Absolutely. I will be, I'll be happy to eat crow. Um, but that's you know just my honest assessment after breaking down this team. So that's all we got for you guys today. I know Sam's itching here to go watch the Warriors play. Uh, we appreciate everybody for listening. Uh, we've been getting your mailbag questions, and we're actually going to do a four-man roundtable. Actually, the first time that all four of us will be together to do a podcast, so we have that coming up in the works. Uh, so please continue. Um, if you haven't done so, please send us what you would like us to talk about here in the football offseason. You can reach us at clemsonpodcast at gmail.com. You can hit us up at Clemson Podcast on Twitter. Check out our Facebook page. And then, of course, iTunes reviews are always appreciated. Um, make sure you subscribe to us on SoundCloud or Stitcher, your favorite podcasting app, so you can keep up to date. You can immediately get notified when we release episodes. And, yeah, we're going to continue to cover this baseball team as far as they go into the playoffs. And then we're going to hit a little lull. Um into June, beginning of July, probably, but football season's right around the corner. You know, once we get going into July, into August, we'll be back weekly for the most part with updates and a preview looking ahead for this uh, 2018 Clemson football team. A lot of exciting stuff there. So, again, thanks to everybody for listening. We'll be back soon with another episode, and as always, go Tigers! <laughs>